Today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Until faith comes to that point where we are completely submitted to it, then, beloved, it has no power to save us. It is only in and through that vehicle or that channel of faith that we enter in. Grace is offered, for by grace are you saved, but it's through the vehicle of faith. We must have faith, not simply head knowledge. And the difference of that head knowledge versus the faith is the absolute, utter, and total dependence you put upon the work of Christ to save you. A knowledge of Jesus is not enough for you to receive salvation. You must also place your faith in Him. Pastor David asks you today if you've placed your faith in Jesus, and he warns you against simply being academic. Don't allow yourself to think that knowledge of God alone is enough, for it's not. Seek out a relationship with Jesus. Allow Him into your heart and put your faith in Him and His Word. Do this, and you'll then know that the kingdom of heaven awaits you. Now here's Pastor David in the book of Hebrews chapter 1 as he continues his message, The All-Sufficient Sacrifice. Five speaks about, you know, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? Uh, in verse six, uh, he again, he brings up the fact that he is the firstborn into the world. And that idea of firstborn is first in honor, first in position. He's the first resurrected from the dead. Verses eight through nine speaks about his divinity. Look what he says there, to the son, he says, your throne, O God, Jesus Christ, was God in human flesh. Your throne, O God. Verses 10 through 12 speaks of his eternality, his, his, his eternal uh, essence. Look at verse 11 says, they will perish, but you remain. Verse 12, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. Again, the eternal presence and, and life and reality of Christ. Chapter 2. Here we have the the warning not to seek any other venue or any other option for salvation. Uh, Verse three says, how shall you escape if you neglect so great of salvation? Church, you need to understand because the world doesn't and the world is gonna come at you. There is no other way. There is no other means of salvation. We hear all the time, well, there's a lot of roads to God and that's not what the word says at all. As a matter of fact, the word says that there is only one way. And how shall you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? Verses five through eight 
Again, uh, he was purposefully made lower than the angels for a short while. And, and, and he, he, he took upon himself the form of a bondservant, Philippians tells us. Uh, he took on human flesh, John tells us in the Gospel of John. He allowed himself to be subject to the issues of the flesh. We see that in all the Gospel writings. Down in verse 9, he did it in order that he might taste death, literally, for everyone. He, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone at the end of verse 9. Verses 11 through 18, we find that he is that perfect sacrifice because he was human flesh just like us. That's why he had to take upon himself human flesh to be the sacrifice for you and I. Look what he says in verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, they're all of one. In other words, of flesh and blood. Jesus was flesh and blood. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Look down in verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Ah, there's so much I could say on that, but we're going to keep moving. Verse 16, for indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Angels aren't redeemed, but mankind is redeemed. Verse 17, therefore in all things, He had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people or full and complete payment satisfaction for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He was tempted and yet he sinned not. He is acquainted with our griefs. He is acquainted with our sorrows. Isaiah speaks of that. And that's the reality of him becoming flesh and blood. As we get into chapter 3, we see that since our high priest was, was faithful even unto death, we are called to remain faithful. And this is a warning. This is a warning for those who are walking away from the fullness of faith in Christ. The writer here, uh, he's worried that some might have an evil heart of unbelief. There in chapter 3 and verse 12, he speaks about, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. When he gives warning to those who are a part of national Israel, Some of those had a heart of unbelief. Look what he says in verses uh, 16 as he reminds them. For who, this is again Israel coming out of Egypt, who having heard they yet rebelled. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter in. Why? Because of unbelief. And you have to catch this. They were part of the nation of Israel. They were released from the bondage of Egypt. 
but they were not part of the completeness of the promise, again, of what God had for them. Religion and ritual will not save you. Only a faith and a belief in Christ, belief in Christ, the total, the one, the only sacrifice for our sin. Now, chapter 4 speaks about then the promise that's ours in Christ, that promise of the rest, but again, only for those in faith. Look what verse 2 says there in chapter 4. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Beloved, here is a key of, of, of what we're talking about here. You can agree with the message of the gospel. You can have a head knowledge that says, man, I understand that. I even believe that in my head. You can even be blessed by the reality of the message of Christ. But until faith enters in, until faith comes to that point where we are completely submitted to it, then, beloved, it has no power to save us. It is only in and through that vehicle or that channel of faith that we enter in. Grace is offered, for by grace are you saved, but it's through the vehicle of faith. We must have faith, not simply head knowledge. And the difference of that head knowledge versus the faith is the absolute, utter, and total dependence you put upon the work of Christ to save you. If you think that you can still do something to add to or to solidify or make sure your faith, beloved, or your your salvation, beloved, it is faith in Christ alone. Only faith, only only grace through faith in Christ alone. Down in verse 12. For the word of God is living and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Look down in verse 14. Seeing then, understanding, recognizing, realizing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast, hold strong, hold on to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all things tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly to that throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Jesus knows our failures. We don't hide a thing from him, by the way. We don't hide a thing. The thing that's done in darkness that no one else knows, he knows. The thing that's done only in our minds, he knows. He knows our weaknesses. Nothing you can do is gonna catch him by surprise. God never says, I never saw that one coming. You realize that, don't you? The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from most all of our unrighteousness, amen? No, that's a lie and that's a heresy. 
He cleanses us from all unright. You got to pay attention. He'll throw one at you, okay? All unrighteousness. Look, look what he says in, uh, skip on over to chapter five. Again, more about the high priesthood of, of, of Christ, chapter five. Down in verse five, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become the high priest, but it was he who said to him, it was God who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, verses uh, 12 through 14 of chapter 5 seems to be better suited, actually, in my, as as I read and as I said, seems to be better suited to be kind of the introduction to chapter 6. It seems as though there's, there's this frustration or this major concern here with the writer toward his intended audience. And apparently there's some there who weren't quite grasping the fullness of the hope that's found in Christ and in Christ alone. And the absolute, that that complete sufficiency of Christ for our sin. Look what he says, Hebrews chapter five, verse 12. He says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is still is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is those who, by reason of use, their, their senses have been exercised to be able to discern good and evil. In other words, he says, you know what? You guys came to faith, but you're not growing in your faith. You've come to faith and you said, "Uh, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? And that's the extent of of your faith. That's the extent of, of your belief rather than getting into the word and growing in the word. And the only way that we can grow is to, again, have our senses exercised, have our understanding exercised. These Jews... They should have been able to connect all of the dots, but it appears as though some of them, again, they were falling away. They were going back into the works of the law. They were going back into the rituals of Judaism. This is still first century uh, Judea. The, the temple is still there. They're, they're still apparently going back into that activity. And here, the writer, he, he wants to go deeper into the Christian faith, into our Christian walk, and into our hope, but, but he's afraid that they're too dull of hearing. They, they're not going to really understand it. But still, uh, as, as, as we read on, as we study, we find out he actually does. He goes on to press in to some of the things other than what he calls here in chapter 6, the elementary understandings, these explanations of in uh, chapter 6, laying again the, uh, the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. You realize that's just an elementary thing. That's the kindergarten thing. That's the thing that gets you in the door. Repentance from dead works and faith in Christ. He said, now we need to move on. We need to grow in that. Uh, verse two of, of doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection from the dead and of eternal judgment. As he gets into verse four, It's written with the same concern as we see at the end of chapter 5 and at the very beginning of chapter 6. 
These Jews were trying to obtain their salvation through either Jesus plus something, or they were trying to get at something totally different than solid faith in Christ. By now, they should have known the truth. They, they were once enlightened. By now, they should have seen and heard, even been partakers of the truth. Some in a very personal way, but the reality is, is there were others that literally vicariously through, through the lives of others. Others have become Christians, and I'm just a part of the church. Others are on fire for the Lord, but I really enjoy the fellowship together. And they're not really there. They're living their Christian faith, not in faith, but vicariously through others. Maybe a spouse, maybe a parent, maybe a friend, maybe others within the congregation. They didn't have a true faith. So if they had seen, if they had experienced these things, they still walk away from the truth. The writer of Hebrews here, led by the Holy Spirit, he says there's no other sacrifice. There's no ritual, there's no action, there's nothing that can then bring you to repentance. What Christ has done, he has done once for all. He was the one and only perfect and complete sacrifice, far better than any other thing that they could find, and he cannot be crucified again. And that's the focus that he brings there. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, having, or if they, fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Again, what he is speaking about here is, I see this actually in two different sides, I believe, of the same coin. Those who have a vicarious relationship with Christ, in other words, it's not their own faith. Perhaps they've tasted, perhaps they've seen, they've been able to experience through the lives of others. Or it is true believers that are trying to fall away. For some reason, they're, they're falling away. And he says, man, if you fall away, where else are you going to go? There's no other thing for you to fall to. There's no other route of, of repentance Christ is the only way. It's all in front of you, he says. And if you don't receive it, there's no other hope. Beloved, remember, Judas Iscariot, he walked with Christ. He was used in the ministry. Remember, he went out when they sent him out two by twos into the areas. And undoubtedly, he performed miracles just like the other disciples when they were sent out. And yet, from the very beginning, the Lord knew that Judas was not one of his. That blows me away. Man, if I knew the guy wasn't on my team, he'd be out of there. But God had another purpose. In the end... Judas walked away, and he entered into eternal condemnation. But I believe that that was because his relationship with Christ wasn't real true faith. It was a vicarious relationship that, hey, we're, I'm, I'm kind of here, but I'm not really here completely in it. And the writer of Hebrews, though, 
He has better confidence in the believers that are receiving this letter. His confidence, though, isn't necessarily in them, but in God who holds them and keeps them. Look at verse 13 as he continues on there, uh, 13 through 20. It speaks of the faithfulness of God's promise. He says, for when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no other greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing, I will bless you, multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, after Abraham patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath of confirmation is for them an end to all dispute. And then in verse 17 is where I want you to get Because God made a promise. God made a commitment to man. And that commitment and that promise of God. For thus God, verse 17, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, the unchangeableness of his counsel. He confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable, two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we might have strong consolation, we who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that's set before us. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. Two unchangeable truths. Number one is God's word. He does not lie. Had not God spoken it, will he not do it? And God's oath, he does not change. If he's sworn an oath years ago, he knows tomorrow and he knows years from now. Why would he swear an oath years ago that he could not keep today? He does not change. In chapter seven, speaks about Melchizedek the king of righteousness, how he was a type of Christ. Verse three of chapter seven says that he was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God and he remains a priest continually. And in the same way, Christ, look down at verse 24, but he, speaking of Christ, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save, sort of, what does it say, gang? To the uttermost. Save to the uttermost. Those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you realize that right now, tonight, Jesus Christ is making intercession. He's right there with the Father. He's making intercession for you. He's praying for you. He knows the stuff you're going through. He knows the battles you're going through, and he's praying for you. That, if nothing else, man, that ought to be an encouragement to every one of us. Verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all, there it is again, when he offered up himself. Chapter eight continues on to drive home the the depth of what's being shared here, here in all of this section. Look at verse eight. And I love what he says here. Now, this is the main point. (laughs) This is what I'm trying to say. He brings it home right here. Now, this is the main point of the things we're saying. Open our hearts, change us from. 
Have you noticed a theme weaving its way through Pastor David's messages and really through the Bible? That theme is salvation. It's Jesus. From the very beginning, God planned for His Son to come save the world from its sins. You find this plan ingrained in His Word, in the lives of the key people of Scripture, and in the words of truth each book provides. We're so glad you're on this journey with us. Through the Bible, we pray you're finding Jesus not just in the text, but in your everyday life, too. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you'll be able to listen online at theopenword.com. There's several messages there, in fact, and many of them go even more in-depth through a verse-by-verse study of each individual book of God's Word. That website again is theopenword.com. Before our time is up with you today, we'd like to turn it back over to Pastor David for a quick request for you, our listener. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I wanted to take a moment and ask you to be praying for the ministry of The Open Word. I know God is working through the messages I've been able to share, and He's opening hearts to His love every step of the way. As Chris was saying, this book I'm teaching from is just filled with grace, and I want everyone to know about it. Would you pray that more and more people would come to know the saving grace of Jesus? Would you pray too for all of us who are creating the Open Word program? We want to keep focused on Jesus, not on us. Thanks so much for praying, and thanks for joining me today on The Open Word. Make us more.